all this um, talk about sports going to be interesting when I go to my um, sermon here. You're probably not going to like me after that. But anyway, <laughs> we'll go with that. So I've got a uh, story for you this morning. She's a bit of a roller coaster, but bear with me. It does have a good ending. So imagine this. It's another day. Uh, you're out to do some errands with your daughter in the car. You drive. Now, like I said, nice and sunny, clear skies. The only problem you've got is traffic, but that's nothing new in the big smoke. You cross over a bridge. It's the same bridge you cross over every day for work. The bridge is about five metres above flowing water beneath. Except, like in true accident form, in a split moment you become part of a serious five-car pile-up and you're at the front. What's worse, your daughter got flung out, ejected from her seat and is now floating in the water below. It's just horrific, isn't it? That's, you could say it's the worst nightmare. I mean, I've got a daughter myself and it's just cringeworthy, right? But on that same day, there was another driver. He was further back. He was part of the accident, but he fared a lot better. He come over and he noticed that your daughter was floating in the water below. Looking around, he couldn't see any boats, no one else to help. Looked down again and saw that she was on her belly. Without a second of thought, jumps in, feet first, and you watching helplessly above what feels like hours, he surfaces, uninjured, and swims with your toddler over his shoulder. He swims to the shoreline, and after a few pats on her back, she expels the water from her lungs and breathes again, life-giving air. It's just amazing. It's a gut-wrenching scenario, but it actually happened. If you look back, you can find on May the 2nd of this year, on Route 90 Bridge over the Marylands Asawoman Bay in the US, um, yeah, you'll find this story. And fortunately, the two-year-old after um, is reported to have been released from the John Hopkins Children's Centre in Baltimore and is expected to make a full recovery. Just think for a moment, though. Now that I've taken you on that wild journey, how much would you be thankful to the person that saved your kid's life? How much praise would you sing to them and me personally, I'd be absolutely lost. I'd be singing their praises from the rooftops. I'd be indebted to them, to the man that put aside their own life just to save another person. Now, reflecting on this story, I want you to keep this idea of praise in the back of your minds. Because as we see in this passage in Psalm 135, there's a lot of praise. I mean, a lot of praise. And it's all pointing to one person, to God. As we read this passage, uh, we see the psalmist believes God is absolutely worthy of praise. But do we? Is God worth your praise? Is God worth your praise? That's the idea I want us to explore in Psalm 135. Now, like a lot of my sermons, I love a three-point sermon. I'm very structured. That's my electrical engineering analytical mind coming out. Um, but I hope to use that to endeavour to answer this question, is God worth your praise? And so let's dive into the passage. And with our first answer to the question, is God worth your praise? That is, he is unlimited in power, yet steadfast in love. Unlimited in power, yet steadfast in love. So read with me from a Psalm 135, verse 7. It says this, 
He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of people and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people Israel. Notice the psalmist here is stating the power of God. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth and he sends lightning with rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Now, plenty have tried to control the weather. I remember going to Henty Field Days one time and at one of the showcases there, there were these big towers that were meant to be put on top of hills and it was called cloud seeding. They'd put in this, uh, release this chemical called silver iodide and the purpose of that was the super cool water in the clouds would then grow to snowflakes and then eventually to raindrops. I'm not real sure how practical the, um, the idea was or how proven the technology is, but it's a nice idea, isn't it? I know as a farmer, I'd love to control the weather. I'd love to have rain there at this time of the year, but I'm sure someone else would probably want it somewhere else. And you know, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice just to control your patch? I often joke with others about my nine different weather apps that I have on my phone. And if I have a consensus among those apps, then I might be able to determine that it's probably going to rain. Might not, but it might. Um, and there's, yeah, high chance it might happen. And yet with my uh, flawless system of determining rain, um, I hopefully weed out, pun intended, uh, the bogus from the prophetic predictions. I still end up none the wiser. <laughs> you see, I'm, like I said, I might work out that I'm going to get rain, but who knows how much I'm going to get and where it's going to land. You see, if predicting the weather is hard enough, then surely controlling it is just a whole other level. Yet this verse, this verse echoes what the Bible says right from the beginning, that God made the heavens and the earth way back in Genesis 1. His power extends not only from what he controls, but the fact that he created it in the first place. We see another element to his power in verses 8 and 9. See, when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, there were ten plagues as signs and wonders, more so to Pharaoh than the Egyptians, to let God's people go. They were captive. They were slaves um, to the Egyptians. This psalm highlights the last, the climactic plague of the ten. Uh, and it was, where it was an absolute devastation among the Egyptians where the firstborn of both animals and people were killed and yet the Israelites were spared. It was a sign of, of great power to illustrate to Pharaoh and the Egyptians of God's sovereignty. The psalm continues to illustrate God's power by showing there was no nation, no king too big or too strong to have any effect on God. Yet there's this other side of the coin that we see from the psalmist in this passage. On the one hand, we have God's incredible and unlimited strength, and yet his love for his people is unwavering. It's firm. It doesn't change. 
In the same story of verses 8 and 9, God shows his love to the Israelites by protecting them and using Moses to lead them not only out of Egypt, but protected from anything else Pharaoh might decide thereafter. And sure enough, he does decide something thereafter, doesn't he? When Pharaoh and his servants were chasing them down after they left Egypt, God gave his final blow to them. Remember, he uses Moses, parts the Red Sea. Imagine this, you've got a wall of water there, a wall of water there, dry ground beneath. They're able to pass between it, only with the Egyptians in hot pursuit behind them. And not long after they passed, the Egyptians entered what was the body of water. And Moses, using God using Moses, um, returned the waters, completely covered them, covered the chariots and charioteers. The entire army of Pharaoh was underwater, as seen in Exodus 14.28. God cares so much for his people that not even Pharaoh could change his plans. Imagine this. It's like a father. It's like a father who loves and cares for their children because they are his. It's a status that just cannot be changed. The father cannot turn around and say that these children aren't mine, although some of us might have a black sheep in the family that could argue otherwise. (laughs) But there's a genetic makeup of the child that has no ambiguity as to who the father is. The father teaches, helps their children to learn and grow, pulling them through the tough times and rejoicing with them in the good, correcting them and praising them. And yet, this father, in this example, just so happens to be the president of the United States. Think about it. That's a title that comes with a lot of power and responsibility. Not only does the president have many staff working for them and under them, but they must take the tough calls that affect hundreds of millions of people. I mean, they have a defence force of a combined strength of one million soldiers at their disposal. And despite all this, all the power and responsibilities, this father is able to take the time out of his day to spend with his precious ones that are his. Now, that's a very nice idea, but the fact is God does so much more than that. He is so much more powerful. How much more does he love us? Someone who created the universe and yet someone who cares so deeply about you and me. The God of the Bible back then is the same God of the Bible today. He cares for his people back then and he cares about you and me today. There's great rest in knowing that. If God is unlimited in his power yet steadfast in his love, shouldn't we take note of that? Surely for us here today right now, we don't really want to waste our efforts with our busy lives, putting things, trusting things that are just fleeting, that give us some joy for the here and now, but are replaced by something else down the track. But rather, if we know that he is unlimited power and steadfast in love and truly believe who he says he is, then there's so much praise that he deserves from us. Consider this for yourself. There's another point, important aspect, uh, that we see from the passage in answering our big question of, is God worth your praise? And that's this. Anyone else is empty foolishness. Anyone else is empty foolishness. Read with me from verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and and so will all who trust in them. Psalmist really doesn't mince words here, does he? 
It's clear. Idols of human hands are lifeless. If an idol is made of human hands, then whatever features might be added to them, no matter how realistic or believable, still cannot speak, cannot hear, cannot breathe. Then verse 18 comes in with a kicker and says that those who make them become like them and so do all that trust in them. We might look at this today and think, well, that's obviously stupid. I mean, no one today would carve something out of their own hands and then claim that once complete, it's something much greater than what the, the one that created it and worthy of worship. And look, to be honest, I'd probably tend to agree with you on that. But let me, however, define idol for you. An object of extreme devotion or worship of something or someone other than God as if it is God. Now, this is where my sport thing comes in. Using this definition, I'm going to use the example of sport. Sport in this country is massive, as we know, right? You only have to look at the past year of COVID even to see the exemptions made for sport. For games to be played in preference of other gatherings that are smaller but yet deemed unsafe. You might remember back to Anzac Day this year, back in uh, over at Melbourne, Victoria, and the exemption made for sport. The Anzac Day dawn service was capped to a maximum of only 1,400 people with 500 to march. That's it. And yet, just hours after that, after the dawn service, was the annual AFL match held at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And guess how many people were allowed to attend that? Not 2,000, not 5,000, not 10,000, 75,000 people allowed to attend as reported on the 13th of April. And this is after 46 days of no locally transmitted infections. Sport's massive. And I'd put it to you, heavily idolised. Maybe you're someone who's devoted 100% to a footy team. Maybe you gather with others to watch regularly your team games and it's rare for you to miss them. Maybe um, if you do miss them, your Foxtel or KO subscriptions have you covered to re-watch the game in all its glory. If we look at our definition of an idol, is, is is this something of extreme devotion to the point that is becoming your God in place of God? Is it getting to the point that your house is filled with photos and flags and scarves and stubby holders and shirts and time heavily spent on watching games and replays? Think seriously if this is something getting in the way of you and God. Or maybe it's something different. Maybe you watch YouTube and are constantly watching video after video for your entertainment or an escape. Maybe you find people doing things that you wish you could do. Maybe it's cooking, could be baking, could be the latest home hacks, could be anything, anything. Now, these things aren't necessarily inherently wrong, but is it becoming more than what they really are? Maybe you're someone who's been gifted enough time to build a family. Maybe you have grandkids or great-grandkids. And maybe you've built a legacy around what you've done for your family or maybe for the church or for anything and everything in your past achievements. Maybe your idol is yourself. 
Idols may not come as statues made of gold or silver to us, but they do come in an attractive wrapper, promise to fill you on the inside, but end up taking all of our energy and really is worthless. End up being our God instead of a God who is far greater. You might be asking the question, though, why should we turn away from idols? Is there anything really wrong with it? Well, let's look at the psalm. The psalm says that idols are empty foolishness. You will never be satisfied. Like I said, they have an attractive wrapper on the outside but pretend to fill you on the inside, and yet time after time it truly doesn't satisfy you. Sometimes it takes a lot of honesty and guts to admit that. You see, to be truly satisfied, one must look beyond the abilities of human hands, past the people of this world. One must search for the ultimate truth, not your truth or my truth as this fad that seems to be going on, but the truth, the truth. If idols are empty foolishness, we need to stop wasting our time with them. Maybe there's something else or someone else worth our time and energy, which brings me to my final point. Up until now, we've seen that God's unlimited in power yet steadfast in love and that idols are empty foolishness. But I haven't fully answered the question, is God worth your praise? And that's where this point comes in. It's the third piece of the puzzle that ties it all together. Open with me. I'm going to go to uh, Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 12. Um, I'm just going to take a few key passages, key verses from this passage. Um, It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin did not charge, is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? To truly understand if God is worth your praise, we must understand his deep longing to save. His deep longing to save. Looking at Romans, we learn that sin entered the world through Adam in the beginning. This disobedience to God has stained humankind to the point so badly that we cannot remove it by our own hands or actions. It results in death, as the passage states. Not only does it result in death, but we see in Scripture that it results in an eternal, eternal separation from what is good, from God. The most amazing part of this story, though, is that while sin is punishable by death, God, through his gift of grace, sends Jesus Christ to be the solution. I mean, let's go to John 3.16, one of the most famous passages I'm sure you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went to the cross, an agonizing and humiliating death, and yet the Romans' most powerful torture device became the catalyst for God's gift of salvation. 
The resurrection shows us his power over death and God's justice for sin being dealt with for those who simply believe in him. The result? Those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave up his son to die on the cross for you and for me. We have to accept that. Just accept and believe it. That's what God wants from us, to believe. How much is that worthy of your praise? Just as a little girl, as I started with, was saved from the impending doom in the car accident story I started, so too does God save us from the impending doom of all eternity. Have you reached out to accept his hand? The psalmist in Psalm 135 is exuding with praise for God. They see God is is unlimited in power yet steadfast in love and that idols are empty foolishness. There is simply no one else like God worthy of praise. Jesus is the idol we crave. And just like back then, God did and still does have a deep longing to save. I mean, God saved his people from the Egyptians, from nations and from kings. And today, right here, he saves us from the eternal separation or death from him for those that choose to follow him. That is cause for immense praise. Not only is he worth your praise, he's deserving of it. If you're listening today and haven't decided to follow him, then can I urge you to take the time to look at the claims of Jesus. Look at the historical accuracy of the evidence that we have today. Put it this way, if the Bible is wrong, I don't really stand much to lose. If it is right, though, you've got to do something about it. For those of you that have chosen to follow him, rejoice. Praise God for what he's done for you. Sing his praises. Tell others. Let God use you, knowing that he has the power to change hearts and delights in using his people, just like you and me. Now, the question is for you to answer. Is God worth your praise? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are, for your great power and your deep love for us. Thank you that you are all we need. Lord, we pray that we would trust in you, that our idol wouldn't be in anything else, that we would be solely focused on you. Lord, we pray for those that may not know you. Please use us. Use us to tell others. And Lord, let us be joyful for those that believe in you. Let us praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 